If you would, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and this is the, the text that we have already read this evening concerning the birth of Christ. Our focus this month has been on the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. We've seen that he is eternally God, almighty, all-present, all-knowing, and holy, holy, holy. And this God, this eternal Son of God, of the same substance, of the same power, the same glory as the Father and the Spirit, humbled himself, came to earth and took to himself a human nature in every way like ours, yet without sin. This human nature joined to his divine nature in the person of the Son. One person, two natures, the natures unchanged, not mingled together. They don't become something other than what they are. His divinity is not changed or lessened and diminished in any way. He is still the eternal Son of God. His humanity is not deified in any way. His body is a physical body like ours, glorified at this point as ours will one day be. His person is unchanged. He is still the second person of the eternal trinity, the Son in relation to the Father. And we've seen that in the the union of these two natures, the human and the divine, in this person of the Son, that he serves as mediator of the new covenant, our Savior. And so as we look at this text this evening in Luke chapter 2, we could focus once again on his humanity and the ordinariness of it, being born to a young mother and a poor family, subject to all the weaknesses and frailties of the flesh. But as I read this text this week and, and meditated and thought on it and read it over and over again, something struck me that I just couldn't let go of. And this is what I want us to see from this text this evening, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, by the decree of God. This is what struck me as I read it. Chapter 2 opens in verse 1 with this statement, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And it seemed to me as I read this and I thought about it that this decree is mentioned in order to draw attention to the decree of God that lies behind it. See, the Old Testament is filled with foreshadows of Christ, with prophecies of Christ, with types that are pointing forward to Christ. Genesis told us that he would be the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham. We know that the one that God would send to set right what had gone wrong in the garden would be born as a human from the line of Abraham. Later in Scripture, we're told that he would come from the line of King David. We see this promise made to David in 1 Chronicles chapter 22. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. 
His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, that, that promise made to David is kept in his son Solomon, but it is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Solomon eventually dies and is put in the grave. He does not sit on that throne forever. But later prophets apply this promise to another seed of David that would be yet to come. Jeremiah writes in chapter 23, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. The king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Isaiah also speaks of this coming son of David in chapter 9 of his book, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will bring this about, that a son of David will arise to sit on the throne. And these are all prophecies of this, this one who is to come, this son of David, who will inherit his throne and rule as king. It's a promised savior who will bring peace on earth between God and men atoning for the sins of his people and reconciling them back to God, their creator. And we see as we continue through the prophets, and we've read already this evening in, in Micah that the prophets specify the place of his birth. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. See, the point is God decreed that the Messiah who would come from the line of David would be born in this little town of Bethlehem. And so we come to the New Testament and to Luke's account of the birth of the Messiah. We come to Joseph and Mary, and Joseph is of the line of David. And Mary may be as well. The angel tells her that she will give birth to a son and that that son, he says, that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So this child that is being born this evening in Bethlehem is from the line of King David, and he will inherit the throne. But he needs to be born in Bethlehem, and Joseph and Mary don't live in Bethlehem. But here's where Caesar Augustus plays a role. The text says that it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quinarius was governor of Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone, to his own city. And so Joseph has to return from Galilee back to his ancestral home in Bethlehem to register for the census which is 
likely for the purpose of levying a new tax on the various regions of the Roman Empire. Now, given the prophecies that had been spoken in the Old Testament concerning the place of the Messiah's birth in Bethlehem, an angel has come to Joseph, we looked at this this morning, and told him that the child that Mary will give birth to is conceived in her of the Holy Spirit. And I said this morning that would be a a difficult thing for people to believe if Joseph and Mary were to tell them this. But if Joseph and Mary had decided on their own to pack up and move to Bethlehem before this child was born, it would have looked a little contrived, like they they were trying to claim for their son that he was the fulfillment of these prophecies. But that's not what happened. What happened is, is that the Roman emperor issued a decree, and then the Roman governor told everybody, return to your ancestral home to be registered. And so God used a pagan king to issue an edict that forced Joseph and Mary to return to Bethlehem just at the right time so that Jesus would be born in the exact location that had been prophesied hundreds of years prior. One commentator notes that Augustus ordered a registration to take place in Judea and each person to give his name that they might afterwards pay an annual tax, which they were formerly accustomed to pay to God. Thus, this ungodly man takes forcible possession of that which God was accustomed to demand from his people. It was, in effect, reducing the Jews to entire subjection and forbidding them to be thenceforth reckoned as the people of God. Matters have been brought in this way to the last extremity, and the Jews appear to be cut off and alienated forever from the covenant of God. But at that very moment, God suddenly and contrary to expectation, affords a remedy. What is more, he employs the wicked tyranny for the redemption of his people. For the governor, while he executes the commission entrusted to him, is unknown to himself God's herald to call Mary to the place which God had appointed. What an amazing act of providence The Roman emperor is seeking his own ends to raise additional tax revenue for his empire, unaware that he is being used as God, by God, as a herald, to call Mary back to Bethlehem so that Christ could be born in the location that had been prophesied. Caesar issues a decree by the decree of God so that Christ would be born in Bethlehem to fulfill what had been written in the scriptures. Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh. Now it's interesting to me as we read this account here in Luke that as the child is born, the first announcement of his birth is made to a group of shepherds out in the field. They're not in town. They're not kings in a palace. They're not religious leaders in a temple. They're shepherds out in a field keeping watch over their flocks by night. You might think that these are unlikely recipients of the first public announcement of the birth of the Savior of the world, but not really. As far back as Genesis 4, we see that Abel 
had been a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. Jacob, Joseph were shepherds. David was a shepherd before he became king. And when he was anointed king, the Lord said to David in 1 Chronicles 11, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over my people. And God later spoke through the prophet Micah, saying of the one who would become ruler and king, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. The promised Messiah was to be a shepherd over God's people. So it really isn't surprising then that God would choose a group of shepherds to be the ones to receive the first public proclamation of the birth of the good shepherd. God sends an angel to them with the good news. And verse 11 is one I want to particularly pay attention to. The angel announces that the birth of the Savior, and he says this, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Note that the angel tells the shepherds, There is born to you. Not simply that there is born this day in Bethlehem, but there is born to you. Not born to his mother or to his parents, but to you. Messiah is born to you. His birth is for you by the decree of God Almighty. Yes, he is born to Joseph and Mary. His birth is a public event, though, not a private one. We, we often think of the birth of the Savior as this quiet, private event. But they were in the common room, the crowded home. And shepherds that they don't even know show up to see this newborn child because God has announced it. This isn't just a baby born to this family. This is the Savior of the world who is born. And so the nation of Israel has waited and waited, pled with God for the coming of the Messiah. And now he's born. His birth is announced to the shepherds. It's to be proclaimed to the nations. His birth is for all those who would believe. Even today, Christ is born to you. He's born in the city of David, which tells the shepherds that this is the promised son of David, the good shepherd who will sit on the throne forever. He is the king of kings laid in a feeding trough. His kingdom will know no end. He'll rule with justice and righteousness. This is unlike any king these shepherds have known. They're they're under Roman rule, not exactly just or righteous. This is unlike any politician we've ever known. This child is a ruler whose authority is beyond that of any earthly ruler. His kingdom will never end. All things have been put beneath his feet. He has been given authority over all things in heaven and on earth. This is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But he's not merely a ruler, he's a savior. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a savior. He didn't come to to rule on the physical throne. He didn't come to overthrow Rome, as so many of them had hoped. He came, as Matthew records, 
The angel visiting Joseph tells him that she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for or because he will save his people from their sins. He's a deliverer. He saves his people from their sins, not from corrupt politicians, not from foreign rule, not from persecution or oppressive taxation, but from their sins. All those other things we might want saving from, but those are things that are imposed on us from the outside. Our sins are ours. They come out of our sinful hearts. These are the things that we truly need to be saved from. Christ came to save his people from their sins. This means that somehow he must atone for their sins so that they may be forgiven and made righteous before their creator. He accomplishes this by living a perfect life in complete obedience to the Father and then offering himself as a substitute sacrificed in our place so that when we trust ourselves to him, the punishment due for our sins is fulfilled in his death. His righteousness is credited to us. And so we are saved from the justly deserved wrath of a holy God. So he is born to us as both king and savior. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ. Christ is not a name, it's a title. It's the Greek equivalent of the word Messiah. When Andrew first meets Jesus, John records that he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Messiah or Christ means anointed one or chosen one. That is, he is the one that God has anointed to be the savior of the world, the one that God has chosen to crush the head of the serpent. He is the long-awaited promised seed, the one who by God's appointment and by God's decree would set all things right. He would succeed where Adam had failed as the covenant head of humanity. He would succeed where Moses had failed as a prophet of God, where Aaron had failed as a priest of God, and where David had failed as a king over God's people. Christ will accomplish all of this. He will be prophet, priest, and king forever, the only mediator between God and man. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's not just a man, the son of Abraham and the son of David. He's also the son of God both man and God, fully human, an acceptable sacrifice substituted in our place, but fully God, without sin, without any blemish that would leave us less than fully saved. So he remains Christ, the anointed one, prophet, priest, and king forever. This verse, verse 11, is densely packed with amazing truths about this baby born in Bethlehem and laid in a, what was likely a stone feeding trough. After hearing this news, the shepherds decide they're going to go into town, it says in verse 15, in order to see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. Well, I would think so. How many of us, if we had been given this news, 
how eager would we be to go and to, to see and with wonder the, the Christ, the promised Messiah, come in the flesh, finally, after all these hundreds of years. And so they go to town, find the child, just as the angel had said. In verse 16, it says, And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And so what is their response to this? Well, verse 17 tells us, Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. They went out and told everyone they could find. Everyone who would listen, they told them the good news. The Savior has been born. Christ has come. The promised seed. The son of David. I'm sure that the content of verse 11 is that saying which was told them concerning the child that they proclaimed to everyone. The fact that a baby was born to a, a, a poor couple and laid in a manger to be his crib, that has significance as it relates to the humility with which Christ came. But if he wasn't the Christ, what's the excitement about a baby born to a poor family? There is none. The saying that they spread widely was, there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The King has come. God's anointed one has come. He is both God and man, the Savior who will crush the head of the serpent and deliver his people from their sins. And this was by the decree of God not by the decree of Caesar Augustus. He was only a herald. All, all of this, the manner of his conception, the decree of Caesar, the place of his birth, what the Puritans used to call the mean estate into which he was born, in other words, the, the hum humility of it, the humbleness of it, the timing of his birth, the announcement of his birth to a group of shepherds, all of these details were orchestrated by God, by the decree of God, for our salvation, which means our salvation was by the decree of God Almighty. Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, by the decree of God. God decreed the salvation of sinners, and he brought the means of that salvation to pass in the incarnation of his Son at the appointed time, in the appointed place, and in the appointed manner. God decreed it, and it happened, just as the prophets had said that it would. This should give us confidence, assurance, in the security of our salvation. It was not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So rejoice in the birth of Christ your Savior. Rejoice, for your King has come and he has salvation with him. Let's pray.